So it was, uh, it was great to be able to uh, turn on the Jeunesse Park website. I don't know if you uh, are aware that our kids are up at Jeunesse Park right now. And Jeunesse Park's website has a webcam that's fixed right on the meadow where they do a lot of their activities. So you can literally spy on your kids right now if you want to. <laughs> Uh, but it's also really useful to see how the weather conditions are up there. And so uh, I was really pleased on Friday morning. There hadn't been any snow. It had rained um, the week before and was kind of slushy up there. Um, and on Friday morning when I woke up and checked the webcab, uh, there had been a couple of inches of snow that had fallen. So our kids do have some white stuff to play with while they're up there. So praise the Lord for his mercy in that. Pray that the Lord is using uh, that time to really enrich our young ones and to bless our leaders as well. I, I know that serving as a youth leader for many years, some of those times were enriching to myself. They were challenging to me as well. Whenever the gospel is preached, whenever the word is opened and taught with truth and with clarity, then, uh, then everyone who's hearing that can be blessed by it. So pray for our leaders who give so much time and, and energy to bringing up our kids and supporting our moms and dads as they raise their children in the truth. We pray that they will return to us safely today and that we'll have a good report of everything that happened at camp. <clears throat> so we are in Luke chapter 22, and we hope that if you're not open there, you will open there now so that we can uh, read together just a few verses today that we're going to be studying in. The Lord has a lot to show us in verses 31 through 34. And so if you've got your Bibles open, you can follow along as I read aloud from the Word of God. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, or till you deny three times that you know me. As we progress towards the dramatic events of the cross, Jesus has some sobering information to reveal to Simon, otherwise known as Peter, one of his 12 disciples, and, and also to the other men that are with him that night. He tells them something that they likely did not want to hear. But it's something that they need to know nonetheless. Satan is making a move for you. Now Satan, as I hope you know, is not some mythological boogeyman that we tell our children about to scare them into more godly behavior. He is a real being. He is a spiritual being. We don't know uh, a lot about him, but we know that he was at one point a very esteemed angel in God's creation, that he was given a position of honor in a position of power, but that he fell from glory because what God gave to him was in his eyes not enough. He wanted the throne that belongs alone to God. And so in hoping to overturn God's rule, he was discovered and banished from heaven along with a third of the host of the angels who had fallen into de de deception with Satan. Uh, we do know that the Lord God has allowed Satan to have some degree of freedom in his creation. He was banished from heaven, but he found his way into the Garden of Eden, that initial place where God placed man and woman, and that by his tempting, sin was introduced into mankind. And you know the rest of the story there. We have been struggling with it ever since. This Satan has demanded that God give the disciples over to him. Jesus isn't trying to terrify the disciples by telling them this, but he is urging them 
to be alert. Last week, we saw the echo of Jesus' words to the disciples ringing out in the Apostle Peter's letter that he wrote later that we have in our New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we, we read the echo of his teaching to these disciples as Peter tells the church the kind of leadership they are to express is the kind of leadership that Jesus gave to us. A servant-hearted leadership, a leadership that is not lording over those who are being led, but a leadership that cares for those who are being led, that serves them and meets their needs and is willing to sacrifice for them. Not the pattern of the world that we are so familiar with where leadership is there to exploit and to serve the self. He taught that the same thing that Jesus taught to him, that leadership is for the benefit of those being led. But that wasn't the only teaching from Christ that found its way into that letter of Peter's. Just a little bit further on in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, the warning that we have here in verses 31 through 34 echoes again in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. Verses 8 and 9, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a, a roaring lion, seeking whom to devour, someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I love that Peter doesn't try to reinvent the wheel. He's just simply telling us what Jesus told to him. And that is our charge as well, church, that the things that we hear and learn from our Savior, let us teach them to our family. Let, them, let us teach them to our children, to our neighbors. Let us echo the truth that we hear on these Sunday mornings and in our personal times of devotion so that the word of truth will ring out into the world. Now it is clear that, that Simon, that Peter, was greatly impacted by this discussion that he had with Jesus and that Jesus shared with these 12 disciples as he prepared them for his departure from earth. Just as the 12 needed to be alert to the threats of the enemy, so too should the church throughout the ages understand that we have an adversary who means us harm. We need to be guarding our heart against the wicked plans that Satan has. We need to ready ourselves to defend ourselves if his temptations should come our way. Now Satan's demand... It's interesting that he demands of God there. Scripture says very plainly. Um, it, it echoes, it's reminiscent of Job chapter 1 and 2, which records another very strange scene in Scripture. Uh, if you were to go back and read that, you'd see God seated on his throne, ruling over all of his creation, and you'd see angels coming to speak with him and, and to give report of how they are serving him and how they are moving to and fro in, in uh, obedience to his commands. And then there in chapter 1, we see something very odd. Satan himself comes into the throne room of God and gives a report to him. This Satan that we often see as, as a complete rebel, under the radar, away from the gaze of God, is, is not so free as many think. He has to check in with the Lord. His freedom is very, very limited by the overarching sovereignty of God. The enemy is only allowed a certain degree of freedom so that we can see the weight and the penalty of our sin. But he cannot do whatever he wants to do. And so in Job chapter 1 and 2, Satan himself, God's enemy, must come and give a report about what he's been up to. So in that Old Testament passage, God engages Satan in a conversation about his servant, a man named Job, about how faithful this man is, about how devoted he is to God. And I see God as kind of baiting Satan into this exchange so that 
through sovereign will, God can show the world what a faithful man looks like and how we must trust in him in order to remain faithful under trial. Satan challenges God and says, I, I don't think that man Job would really even love you at all if it weren't for the many blessings that you gave to him. If you were to remove your favor from his life, I think he would curse you and turn his back upon you. And so in that book of Job, God allows Satan, he, he broadens his freedom to a degree and allows him the chance to go and to wreak havoc into Job's life so that he can prove that a faithful man can stand in the midst of great temptation and trial. And that trial gets worse and worse as the book reads on. I'm, every time that I feel like I'm going through the ringer, I read the book of Job and remind myself that I'm a blessed man, that God is very merciful and kind to me, that I don't have it nearly as bad as I deserve to have it. And so here again, Satan desires to lead some of God's people astray, but he cannot do that unless he gets permission from God. There is a brashness, a, a, an arrogance to the way that Satan comes and demands these 12 disciples from him. It's, <coughs> it's intriguing to me that Satan, though he is the great deceiver, cannot cover up his burning desire to have what only God has. He covets God's leadership and his authority so greatly that he can't even help but be disrespectful to God, even he, though he knows this God could extinguish him with a word. And so he demands that God give him the 12, even though he has no power over God. God is in control. God has chosen these men to do a great work in the church, and yet Satan bitterly demands that God hand them over to him as if he or any other created thing has the authority to demand anything of the creator. At the same time, there is a great irony, and I hope that you see it here, how devastated the enemy of God is though he boils over with pride, <clears throat> though he is teeming with arrogance, here in these instances, like we read here in chapter 22 of Luke and like we read in Job chapter 1 and 2, that he must come and ask permission of his opponent. He cannot do anything unless the one he is fighting against allows him to do it. What a defeated position he is in. How sovereign is Jesus that not only the rules of the game of life, but every roll of the dice is determined by God's sovereign hand in advance, that the enemy cannot undo any of God's plan whatsoever. Now there's something very important I, I need to point out to us in the Greek here in this morning's passage. Look again at your scripture. You've got the Bible open in front of you there. Verse 31, the term that you read that says you a couple of times there in verse 31, that is a plural you. Jesus is speaking about all of the disciples here. <clears throat> when he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. He's saying, Satan demanded to have all of you. <clears throat> that he might sift all of you like wheat. He's revealing that Satan isn't just gunning for Jesus. Satan doesn't just have his sights set upon Peter, but he's actually asking for all or any of the 12 disciples. He wants to take out of as many of them as God will allow. And our enemy doesn't just want to make things hard for these men. He wants to have them. That word for have there means to possess. In other words, he wants God to give up his rights to these men so that Satan can actually possess them for himself and do with them as he pleases. Perhaps that does happen to Judas. But we can be assured that Judas never really belonged to God in the first place. 
because Christ tells us the good shepherd never loses a sheep. And so if Judas is to turn and betray Jesus the way that he does, then he was never one of the flock to begin with. If he can obtain some control of the disciples, Satan intends to sift them. Now this is an interesting word picture here. Something that is sifted is put through a kind of trial that will determine its genuine identity and essence. Winnowing and straining are similar word pictures that might be used to describe this process. A contaminated product is put through a filter or a screen and sifted back and forth so that the real deal drops through the the strains of that filter or that screen. And whatever doesn't belong in that mixture is then caught up in the screen or the filter and is able to be disposed of. That is what sifting means. So in other words, Satan is asking that God would determine that these individuals are not true believers, that he would sift them out of his flock and turn them over so that Satan can use them. You you, you might be reminded of the parable of the soils a little bit when you think about this image of sifting. God describes through Jesus Christ many seeds that are thrown out and sown into different soils. There are four different types. And one of those types of soils that receives this seed, the seed being the gospel message of truth, the faith that we have in Jesus Christ, one of these seeds falls into a soil that is ripe with weeds and thistles and thorns. And that seed begins to sprout up. It begins to have a a hint of life to it. There's a little promise there. You wonder if one day it might overcome the odds and grow into a tree and one day bear great fruit and be productive and useful to the kingdom of heaven. But because it has fallen and started to grow among the thistles and the thorns, that initial sprout that showed promise is quickly choked out by the surrounding plants. It does not receive the nourishment that it needs. The nutrients in the ground are being sucked up by competing thorns and thistles. And so that plant that showed some promise withers and shows that it actually isn't a true tree unto the Lord God. It has been sifted. Only the seed that falls into the good soil and grows roots in the Lord's truth can grow to be a mature and fruitful plant. Now this idea of the sifting and the way that Satan demands to sift these individuals and asks essentially for permission to do so, it reveals something about our adversary. Satan does not know who belongs to God and who does not. Did you realize that? You know, we talk about predestination from time and time here because it's a biblical concept. The Lord God not only knows who is going to be saved before they make a choice to follow after him, but but it is his divine will who will and will not be saved. But we don't know that divine will, and so we often struggle back and forth as we contend with one another. What does it mean to be elect? What does it mean to be predestined? And how do we know if we are or not? Well, it gives me a little comfort to know that Satan doesn't know either. Though God knows every human being who will trust in him, Satan is basically shooting from the hip. He's not sure who is saved or who is not saved. He's just got to look and see what he sees as evidence in their lives and try to determine it that way. But he's not really sure who has the Spirit and who does not. A very interesting weakness in him. This warning and this record of of Job's trial remind us that close proximity to faith in Jesus Christ, close proximity to God and faith in the Lord 
does not guarantee us a trial-free existence here on earth. Satan wants to harass. He wants to pull away at these people that belonged to the community of Christ, that were following after him. And anyone who preaches to you a Christianity that is free from temptation, that is free from setbacks and free from tribulations and persecutions, if they are teaching you that kind of Christianity, one of two things is happening. Either they're teaching you about Christianity in heaven after our time here on earth, or they are lying to you. Because Christianity is not the thing you choose to do if you want a pain-free existence. If you want a happy-go-lucky, carefree life, do not choose to be a Christian. Because to be a Christian means to instantly be at odds with the natural way of the world around you. When you, defy, when you decide to follow Jesus, when you confess your belief in Him, you align yourself with a way of life that is foreign to this world that is so plagued with sin. You are suddenly now no longer trying to be the king of your own kingdom, but you have instead embraced the one true king who reigns over all things. And his word is now truth to you. You say amen to the things that he tells you to do. You, you coincide with his will and you desire to walk how he calls you to walk, even if it looks drastically different than the men in this world who consider themselves free and do what they want to do on their own. Let me be very clear. Following Christ in this world is a battle. It is a battle that we will win if we are in Christ, but it is a battle nonetheless. And there are pitfalls and hazards that we must be on the lookout for. And that is part of what Jesus is doing right here in this passage of Scripture. He is alerting his men to these pitfalls, these trials, these potential roadblocks that are going to show up in front of them as they walk the path of truth. Now, as verse 31 used the plural form of you, indicating that all the disciples need to be aware of these threats, verse 22 switches. Jesus begins to use the singular you as he focuses on how this threat will particularly affect Simon Peter. That's something you don't just see when you, when you read the English version of this. You don't realize that. But from verse 32 on, he's speaking specifically to Peter now. Though Satan would delight in the downfall of the disciples, Jesus is praying, specifically praying on behalf of Peter, that his faith would not fail under pressure. Peter's confident declaration in verse 33, that he will not leave Jesus' side, that no matter what the consequence, whether it is imprisonment, whether it is death, don't worry about me, Jesus. I'm not going to step away. You can count on me. This is an empty promise. Friends, we are tempted to think of ourselves in those terms from time to time, aren't we? We even sing such promises from time to time to our God. Sometimes you sing, I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my precious Savior. I surrender all. And yet we all know there are things that we are still clutching and clinging to that we need to surrender to our God. We sing that idealistically, asking God to give us the faith to, to live with that kind of a mindset. But have we really truly surrendered all to the Lord God? I know that we will one day when this, when this life is over and sin and its temptations are stripped away from us once and for all, but none of us has truly surrendered all to the Lord God. Sometimes we sing, I could sing of your love forever. 
And then we look at our watch when we're 10 minutes over on a Sunday morning and we can't wait for the, the sermon to be done and the last song to be over so we can go and get some kinders after church, right? We often think of ourselves as more faithful than we really are. Peter is not the only one to fall into this trap. I'm sure I would, I'm sure all of us would love to confidently declare to God that we will never offend him again, that we will never waver or compromise, that we will never turn our back on him, but we don't have the authority to promise such things. Our hearts are not dependable. And the faith that we have to stand against such temptations come not from ourselves, but from God. Therefore, to vow unwavering faithfulness to God is to make a promise that is dependent upon what God has not necessarily provided for us yet. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Every day we deny ourselves and take up our cross and thank the Lord God for His grace and ask Him for, for mercy to walk through this day and to face the temptations we are up against. For me to vow to the Lord God that I will never waver is to guarantee that I will never fail to deny myself and pick up that cross. And I just can't make that promise to Him and expect to keep it. I am a man. And by definition, I fail. Jesus' reply to Peter's bold promise is a sobering one. He says in verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Simon will not be able to stand as strong as he would like to believe that he can. Jesus reveals to him that before the sun comes up and before the rooster crows, signifying a new day, that very night, within hours, Peter will not have the courage to stand firmly with him in his time of need. He will have denied his Savior, not once, not twice, but three times. How do you think this affected Peter? How would you feel to stand among the other 12 and to hear that you were preparing to fail three times to your rabbi? What did we just learn these gentlemen were doing a few seconds before? They were all arguing with each other about which among them was the greatest, right? And I guarantee you that at least a couple of those disciples said, well, pff, man, Peter seems to always be with Jesus. He seems to be doing the things that, you know, stand out. He walked on the water. He's, you know, he's, he's in the transcendence. He got to see the Lord in his glory on the mountaintop. He, he confesses the right things. He's called the rock. I wonder if any of that got to Peter a little bit. He started to think of himself as mighty, only to hear that he, maybe the mightiest of the disciples, would fall in just a few short hours. It is not my intent to discourage you in saying what I'm about to say, but I feel responsible to let you know that your betrayal of Jesus is imminent as well, as is mine. We all fall short of the glory of God, even after we are saved, even after God has defeated our sin on the cross and put into us the Holy Spirit of promise, even now that we have eyes to see and ears to hear, the truth of the gospel is ours, and yet we will, at some point, turn our back on the Lord and let him down. 
We will at some point ignore his calling in our life and pretend like he has not told us to do what we know we should do so that we wouldn't have to do it. When the Apostle Paul writes in Romans about how the good thing he wants to do, he does not do. And the very sinful thing he does not want to do, that is the thing that he actually does. And he expresses his frustration about that. He is preaching that to saved people in Rome. He's telling them, I know how you feel when you fail the Lord God because I want to do the right thing and I can't do it all the time. I wish that I could, but I cannot. When the beloved disciple John writes about the fact that anyone who says they do not lie is in fact a liar and then describes how, importantly, uh, how important it is to regularly repent to the Lord, those words are not written to unsaved people. They are written to believers. They're written to people like you and I who need to remember that we fail and we fall. But because we serve a God of grace, He picks us back up again. He redeems us. He shows us that the cross was not just sufficient for past sin, but will cover everything we ever do as well. When we see the good thing that God would have us do and we choose not to do it, are we not betraying Him? Are we not going back on our confession that He is our Lord and that our lives belong to Him now since that he has purchased us from our sin by the blood that he shed on the cross. Aren't we betraying him in a way by not letting him rule us the way that he should? Sin is betrayal. It is unfaithfulness to our loving Savior who sacrificed himself to rid us of sin. There is something to be learned brothers and sisters here as we examine this passage. And I want us to realize that the last several verses are essentially telling the same story twice, but each of those stories has a different ending. It is telling the story of how Judas betrays Jesus. He sells Jesus out to the highest bidder. He goes to the high priest and knows that they are adverse to Christ, that they want him gone, and he offers his services in just a few verses, the men will be in the garden praying and Judas is not with them because he has gone to secure a battalion of troops and he's going to come and with a kiss on the cheek of Jesus, he's going to reveal to those soldiers which one of them is the leader, which one of them is Christ. And they will arrest him. Judas betrays Jesus. But here we have a second betrayal, another in the same kind. Peter betrays Jesus. It is not premeditated, it doesn't put a bag of silver in Peter's pocket, but as Jesus is dragged to trial and Peter follows behind the crowd, others see that Peter is with them. They recognize him as one of the Galileans that was ministering with Jesus, and they call him out, and he denies that he even knows the man. He refuses to admit that he stands for Jesus' truth or that he even is familiar with who Jesus Christ is. After Judas acts out his betrayal. And Luke is not going to cover this in too much detail. At least he doesn't until the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. I think chapter 13, he gets into some details about that. But after Judas acts out his betrayal, he reacts with a kind of worldly guilt as he realizes that he has taken up arms against an opponent who is unbeatable, that he has offended, in fact, the very living God. Matthew chapter 27 records the way that Judas deals with the guilt that begins to overwhelm him 
when he realizes just what he has done. Verses 3 through 5 of Matthew 27. This is shortly after Jesus has gone to the cross and been executed for our sin. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. The man may seem repentant, but if you look closely at his actions, they tell the real story. Who does Judas go to when he realizes how terribly he has offended the living God? Who does he go to? There is no biblical record that he appealed to the very God that he has offended. There is no indication that he hits his knees and in prayer pours his heart out to the one who could give him quarter. But instead he goes back to those high priests, those who the society of Jews believed held the real power in the community. And he begs for them to take the money back. He does not want to be found to be a turncoat, to be a betrayer. And so he tries to give the silver back. In other words, he's trying to escape the consequences of his own sins by some form of repentance or penance. The desire to be with the Lord again is not really what we see on his heart. The desire to escape from his condemnation is the one thing that concerns him. He is tormented by guilt, yes, but his great fear is to be found out and punished. And so he does what Satan has been trying to do. He takes matters into his own hands and offends God again by taking his own life, a right that only God has. Many who will betray the Lord will follow this pattern of wrong repentance. Rather than surrender themselves to God's mercy, they will feverishly fight to make things right on their own, through their own power, through their own penance. They will penalize themselves with some sort of punishment that inevitably always falls short of the hell that our sin rightfully demands. And none of that will ever satisfy because they are not trusting in Jesus, they will not experience grace because Jesus is the only solution to our betrayal. The only way we can be redeemed from our sinful state is not through our efforts and actions. It is through Christ's grace, his willingness to overcome our failure with his righteousness. That's the first story of betrayal. Peter's is similar to it, but again, the ending is very, very different, isn't it? Peter's going to turn his back on Jesus as well. His denial is unfolding over the course of the very early morning as Jesus is dragged into the council of the high priests, just as Jesus prophesied. This disciple finds himself denying Jesus three times before his Lord. Before he even goes to the cross, Peter has proven to be unfaithful. We're going to study that in more detail in three weeks. But the attitude with which Peter responds to his failure is going to be much different than the attitude that Judas showed. And the first thing that we notice is this. Peter returns to the other disciples. Though he knows he is a guilty man, 
though his conscience is terribly heavy, he does not flee. He does not reject Jesus' followers before they can reject him, as so many who experience church discipline attempt to do. But instead, though his faith has faltered, he knows that his place is among believers. Even though he must hang his head in their presence, knowing that he did not stand as many thought, surely Peter will stand as he had promised to stand, he goes back and returns to the disciples who belong to Jesus. Secondly, we see that Peter does not set out to make things right on his own. There is no elaborate penance by which Peter tries to undo his great sin. The solution to his failure is not self-punishment. It is not behavior modification. It's not a more bold vow. Oh, next time I won't do it. I'll never do that again, Lord God. Just forgive me this one time and I'll never do it again. That's not how he does it. He doesn't make an effort to prove to himself to be faithful to the Lord God. The book of John goes into a bit more detail as to Peter's story after the resurrection. In John 21, we have this beautiful story of of forgiveness where we see Peter, who has remained with the other disciples, trying to figure out what to do in the wake of his rabbi's passing. And he's sitting there with some of the other disciples and he says, I'm going to go fishing. He's a fisherman. It's what he knows how to do. The disciples have got to eat, so he's going to go out on the boat. And several of the disciples join him. They go out onto the sea and they begin to fish, but they're not catching anything in the nets. And then as John 21 unfolds, Peter looks out onto the shoreline and he sees a figure. And something within him stirs. And he knows that that is Jesus, his Savior, not buried in a tomb, resurrected and alive. Peter doesn't waste any time at all. He jumps into the water with all of his clothes on, swims across the channel so that he can be with Jesus right away. Some of us would have done this. Had we betrayed our Savior, we might run from him. We might hide from him. What does Peter do? He wants to be with Jesus. That is his Desire. He does not run away from Jesus. He runs to Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. Even if he deserves punishment, he wants to be with his Savior because his Savior loves him and he loves his Savior. Though he is a failure, he wants to be with the one whom he knows loves him. He wants to be with the one who has provided him the grace that is his only hope for redemption. How differently Peter's story's his story ends than Judas's story. He learns from and grows from his failure. That story in John 21, read it this week if you've got some time in your devotions. I love the story of Jesus' gentle heart towards his, his disciple. He sits with him and, and he asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me with a faithful love? And Peter says, Jesus, you know I phileo you which is a lesser kind of love. It's a brotherly love. It's a, it's a camaraderie. He says, yeah, I, I don't deserve to say that I agape love you. I don't deserve to say that I love you the way that you love me because clearly I'm a turncoat. And Jesus says, then you need to feed my sheep. Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter again says, Rabbi, you know that I love you. He says, tend to my lambs. And three times he gives Peter this opportunity to remember that 
Jesus had prayed for him. And what exactly did he pray? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Verse 32 of 22, Jesus knew he would turn, but he also knew that he would turn again. And when that repentance comes, he should not stand as a defeated, disqualified person, beating himself up, separating himself up from those who are truly faithful to the Lord God, but instead he should receive the grace that God has offered to him and he should go right back to serving God the way he should. Feed my lambs, tend to my sheep, strengthen your brothers. So friends, we have two stories of failure. But one story isn't really truly a failure because the redemption of Jesus Christ makes Peter once again useful and holy to the Lord God. We will fail our Lord as well, friends. Because we are not as faithful as we would like to think we are, because we are not as devoted to Christ as he deserves us to be, we will sin. We will stumble, we will fall. When temptation comes our way, when you and I struggle, when we turn our back on the Lord, how will we respond to that failure? It's my prayer that by seeing the graceful forgiveness of Jesus in the life of Peter, in the betrayal of Jesus, but the redemption of Peter, that we would learn how to react to the inevitable failures that we will make in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Are you self-condemned today? If so, then let Jesus be your kind judge. Trust him. He is patient with you. He desires a right relationship with you. He wants to forgive. Repent to him first and foremost. Confess your sin and allow him to give you the free gift of grace that you need. Are you running from the fellowship of the saints because of your failures? You may think, well, no, Nick, I'm here in church, right? I'm here. But I guarantee you there are some who are here that are still quietly running from us, quietly running from the true fellowship of honesty with one another. Be willing to share with your brothers and sisters when you have stumbled and when you have fallen. Go to the Lord first, but then come to them and say, I need help, guys. I don't want to be a sinner. I need your strength. Pray for me. Watch me. Guide me. Correct me if I need it. Do not forsake the fellowship of the saints. Are you straying away from Jesus because you are ashamed of, his, of the sins that you have committed against him? The only remedy to that shame will not be found in any hiding place. Turn to him. Seek him. Know that he is the giver of grace and that his grace abounds. The failure that you have committed against God was no surprise to him. He knew it would come, and yet he died for you on the cross, knowing it. Trust in the work that he did, that the power of the cross is greater than any sin that you could ever commit. And when that repentance is, repeat, is complete, when you have turned again to him, strengthen your brothers. Turn to others who have gone through this trial. Turn to others who are stuck in their sin, who are running away from the grace of God, and point them back to where they need to be in his loving arms. Would you bow with me in prayer? God, we don't deserve to come to you, to even ask of you 
your favor and your mercy. Satan demanded that you give the disciples. We don't even have the right to come and ask you for forgiveness. And yet, because of the blood you shed on the cross for our sins, our guilt has been paid in full. It's been satisfied. You are a God of justice, and yet justice has been done completely in Jesus for those who have trusted in you. And so, Lord God, I praise you that we can speak to you today as a redeemed people, as a people who have been brought back to you, not by our efforts, but by your amazing work on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would remind us that the enemy would love to make us trip, Lord God. Please make us aware of his power. Though it is limited, it is dangerous. God, do not let us fall into the deception of our enemy. That would paint us as failures for life if we have failed but once. Instead, Lord God, let us see that your redemption is at hand and that your power is greater than our sin. We love you for loving us. Help us to respond with greater faith, Lord God. Help us to know you are good and to never doubt that we are yours if the Holy Spirit is in us. Thank you, Lord God, for all that you have done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.